Section 47 of The Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Reverend M. P. Hill. Section 47. Hell. Objection. God is good and merciful. But a good and merciful God would not condemn a soul to eternal torments. Therefore, the eternity of hell is a contradiction of our belief in his goodness and mercy. The answer. God is good and merciful, but he is also just, and punishes sinners as they deserve to be punished, and a grievous offence against God deserves eternal punishment. God's loving-kindness, on the other hand, is shown by the fact that he supplies, even superabundantly, the means of salvation, and by the fact that he bestows upon those who make a good use of those means a reward immeasurably greater than the absolute merit of those who receive it. Those who argue against eternal punishment, or against God's mercy in connection with the eternity of punishment, have the habit of fixing their gaze on one side of the picture and forgetting the other. The idea of eternal punishment so preoccupies their minds that they are well-nigh incapable of thinking of the causes and circumstances of the punishment. And yet of all subjects, the punishment of the damned is the one that most requires to be considered in all its aspects, and that for the following reasons. 1. It is a matter concerning the Supreme Lord of Heaven and Earth, the Infinite, Eternal and All-Wise God. Of that supreme being we know, after all, so little that we should not turn the little knowledge we have of him into a weapon of offence against any of his attributes. 2. Of all the aspects of God's being known to man, that of his loving-kindness and mercy is the one that is the most conspicuous in his dealings with mankind, and it is one that fills the human mind with inexpressible admiration. The abyss of his goodness and mercy is much more unfathomable than his motives for inflicting punishment. There is, it is true, a rigorous side to God's dealings with men, even during their mortal lives, that fills us with terror. But of that rigour we can, in some measure, divine the reasons. The pains and inflictions meted out both to individual men and to nations have often been the temporal punishment of crimes that have made the earth groan with the weight of the iniquities that have oppressed it. And the temporal punishment, in many cases, may have brought men to their senses and saved them from eternal punishment. Then, too, many of the temporal afflictions which men are all too prone to attribute to God as their source are not really attributable to Him except in the sense that He has permitted them. That is to say, has not prevented them but always for man's ultimate good. In cases in which a severe temporal punishment, only temporal and not eternal, so far as we have any means of knowing, has been given for what seemed a comparative trifle, as when Ozo was rash enough to lay his hand upon the Ark of the Covenant, the punishment was intended to inspire the people with a sense of awe in dealing with sacred things. In the case of the chosen people, there was often need of a signal example of the divine displeasure following an act of irreverence, 
and the example often proves salutary for many a generation. Thus, we can always find a reason for the severities of God's temporal rule, a reason that squares with our human sense of justice. But who will ever sound the depths of his loving-kindness and mercy? Taking the divine bounties either singly or in their entire range, from creation to the beatific vision, who can ever say why or wherefore God should have conferred them at all? Why should he have created us when he had no need of us? For he was infinitely perfect, infinitely happy. Who will ever discover a reason except in his ineffably mysterious goodness? And creation is but the beginning of an endless train of blessings, temporal and eternal. His creating us to his image and thereby endowing us with intelligence and free will. The natural and supernatural gifts lavished upon the first two of our race. The rich rewards of virtue he bestowed upon the patriarchs, upon Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. The care he bestowed upon the chosen people in Egypt, in the desert, in the promised land. The abundant temporal rewards conferred upon the virtuous observers of the law. These are the unmerited and spontaneous outpourings of goodness which mark only one half of God's dealings with men. The other half must be sought in that new dispensation which is the fulfilment of the types of the old. The prophecies had teemed with descriptions of a new era in which the favours of the Almighty would be showered down in untold abundance as the diary which the Eternal Father was to send into the world with his divine Son. God so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son. Here we have a new abyss of mercy, which is more unfathomable than the first. The very life of the Saviour, apart from the innumerable blessings that came with him, would be sufficient of itself to prove that his mercies are the least comprehensible of all the things we know about God. But if we add to his life his superabundant merits, which when turned into graces form the inexhaustible treasury of God's church, if we add the graces and consolations and the foretastes of heaven which is received with the sacraments which our divine Lord instituted, we shall obtain even then but a faint conception of the love of the Creator for the work of his hands. The climax is reached when the joys of heaven are added joy springing from the possession of the infinite God himself, and for eternity. Is it not true, then, that the abyss of his mercies is more unfathomable than his motives for inflicting pain? If, therefore, a God whose mercies are unspeakably great visits some of his rational creatures with eternal punishment, there must be motives for punishing which are worthy of his infinite attributes. The thought of hell necessarily awakens deep reflection. Let not such reflection issue in an impeachment of the divine mercy. Let it rather issue in a deeper sense of the enormity of sin, of the ingratitude of the sinner, and of the perversity of one who not only adds sin upon sin, but sets at naught the divine warnings heard in the depths of his soul. Let it also open to view that unseen world of grace in which God fairly besieges the soul with his merciful inspirations. We know not the number of the reprobate 
nor can we presume to pass judgment on any sinner who has left this world, no matter how great his sin. But one thing we know, that no one was ever lost who was not lost, in spite of God's merciful designs in his behalf. End of section 47 Recording by Florence